Sure, you bet. Okay. Uh, I want to welcome everybody this morning. Uh, we're today is um, the 225th anniversary of Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport. I know on the document it says August 21st, but the executive director of the George Washington Institute for Religious Freedom, who probably knows more about this letter than any other person, said that he believes it was actually written on August 22nd. So the, we're at the very day, 225th anniversary of this wonderful letter. Uh, and we thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about the letter, obviously, but also to um, compare it to two other very important statements about religious freedom that are come from the founding era, Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance and the Virginia Statute of Religious Liberty. Uh, all three of these documents are in a 54 document collection that Chris Burkett put together. And Chris is with us this morning to uh, help us talk about these documents. Um, I want to encourage uh, everybody who's uh, uh, part of the webinar to use the chat function. Jeremy Gifton's going to monitor that for us. Chris and I will try to do that as well, but he, he will monitor the chat function and uh, bring questions to our attention. So we encourage you to uh, send your comments and questions as we talk. Uh, before we get started, I'll just mention also that if you want a certificate for attendance at this uh, discussion, you can get that um, by, uh, but in order to do that, you have to fill out a survey form and Jeremy has pasted the link into the chat box uh, so you can you can all see that. Uh, you only have to fill that out once. Jeremy's going to uh, post it again at the end of the discussion, which uh, we'll go to about quarter after uh, 12 East Coast time. So if you do want um, a certificate for attendance, you can fill out that form. And uh, so let's get started. And I, I, I wanted to start just by giving a brief, a brief background to this letter. Um, Washington uh, made a tour of the northeastern states, but he didn't visit Rhode Island because in typical fashion, Rhode Island was acting in a contrary manner and hadn't yet uh, ratified the Constitution, so Washington didn't visit. But when they did, subsequent to his tour of the northeastern states, when they did ratify <clears throat> the Constitution, Washington decided to go back, and he made this trip in the summer of 1790, and it's also at the time when the, uh, the Bill of Rights was, was still under consideration. Um, and he, when he went to Newport, he was met, as he typically was, by delegation of citizens, one of whom was the warden of the Toro Synagogue, Moses Satius, who, uh, as other citizens did, um, got an opportunity to present a, a welcoming, uh, some welcoming remarks to Washington. And Michael Feldberg, who's the, again, is the executive director of the George Washington Institute for Religious Freedom, whose website uh, is, has a lot of information on the letter. It's an interesting uh, place to visit for information about it. But M Michael, I heard Michael Feldberg say once that when Satius was first presented to Washington, he fainted. Uh, and you know maybe it was the hot maybe it was the hot weather in Newport. 
Uh, but Michael Feldberg said he thought it was actually that 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 Moses Satius was overcome uh, by the by the you know being in the presence of the great man and just fainted and but but he revived uh, revived himself recovered and he was able to present his welcoming remarks uh, which uh, uh, Washington um, listened to and then uh, a few days later uh, Feldberg believes August 26th in fact. This letter was drafted, the letter that we now know is the letter to the Hebrew congregation at Newport in response to um, uh, the remarks of the, the warden of the synagogue. Uh, the synagogue story is actually interesting. I, I don't really know the history, but um, I, from the little I, I know of it, they, they had actually, uh, the congregation had moved to various places. Uh, even I think it was to the Bahamas at one point or Bermuda in search really of religious freedom. And they heard that in Rhode Island, such such a thing as religious freedom actually existed uh, and that Jews could live there uh, peacefully with, with Christians and others and prosper. And so the, uh, the congregation moved and set up soon after arriving, uh, the, the Jews set up a synagogue, which is now the Toro Synagogue, still standing in Newport, a beautiful building. Um, and, and they, they did prosper, uh, and they were thankful for that. And Satius's letter to Washington expresses that gratitude, but, but in a way uh, also to, uh, in a certain sense, to, uh, I don't know if the right word would be demand, but to encourage Washington to continue this support in the new government that's being formed, and now Rhode Island will be part of the union to make sure that this new country will continue to respect religious freedom. And, and that's why Washington's letter, I think, is so important. If you think of who Washington was, uh, the extraordinary moral authority he had to write a letter like this, uh, it, it really is a, re a remarkable thing. And I'm sure when Satius uh, and, and his uh, fellow Jews received the letter, they were gratified uh, and very happy. To, to have received it and to have someone like Washington be the president of this uh, of this new country. Hey, so, David, David, can I ask a question? This is really fascinating. I'm sorry to interrupt, but because I want to hear more. But um, so if I understand what you're saying correctly, Washington in, in writing this letter was actually writing a kind of endorsement for the kind of religious liberty that, um, that the Hebrews in Rhode Island were had been looking for all the time. So the authority of, the, there's an authority to the letter. I mean, I've always read the letter from a certain perspective, thinking it's beautifully written because it expresses, you know, the fundamental of idea of religious liberty. But, but there is a, this is really fascinating. There's a political importance to this letter. Yeah, that's, that's a good point to bring out. And it was a good interruption, Chris, because I had just exhausted my limited knowledge of the history of the Turo synagogue. But yeah, in fact, in Satius's letter to Washington, it, it contains the phrase, uh, bigotry, no sanction to persecution, no assistance. And so Washington actually used some of the language in the letter that Satius had sent to him, which is a, a, an even stronger endorsement in a way. He's, he's taking the Jewish congregation's very words and putting his moral authority behind it. So that that to me is a very and I know that that was that's not unusual that that often in these letters uh, Washington and other presidents would 
kind of as a courtesy, you might say, repeat some of the language that that was in the letter sent to them. But in this context, I think you're right. It is a it's a political uh, statement and an active, uh, you know, very high political rhetoric in a way to to use Satius's very words and to add to them, um, it, you know, his, not only his authority, but his own characterization of what religious liberty meant. Yeah, it's almost as though, yeah, this is fascinating. It's almost as though, again, this is, if there was ever going to be any doubt whether Jews could be uh, fully integrated as citizens and enjoy all the equal privileges of citizenship, if there was ever going to be any doubt about that in the minds of people, Washington's letter would would put an end to that doubt, it would seem to me. Because, I, again, there seems to be along the, the East Coast colonies, the northern East Coast colonies, there's a there's a really remarkable degree of at first toleration for and then equal recognition of the right of, of Jews to be to be full citizens. Really, again, for the first time, really, maybe since the Old Testament, the times of the Old Testament. But um, I know the further south you went, there was less and less um, rec recognition of the full and equal rights of religious liberty for Jews. There was some toleration, but uh, but it's, it's still remarkable that Washington would would really stamp this, and it's like a stamping of a, or an endorsing the thing, right? By stamp, giving his stamp of approval, by saying this is the way it ought to be. That's, yeah, that's remarkable. I actually I never thought of that, David. Yeah, it's um, it, you know, we, he he did uh, also. Washington received a letter from a a, a Hebrew uh, synagogue in um, Charleston, I believe, um, and and so. Jews were 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 uh, present in in various colonies, but there was this tradition, and it's uh, to me interesting that um, Rhode Island always had this reputation for religious liberty, and Washington um, is is speaking to that in this letter. But it was it was also the case that um, Jews lived and and and. Uh, prospered in in other colonies as well um so that's uh let me just say that's uh background to the letter and i think chris you did you did that's a good good point to highlight but l let me ask you something if if you in, the, in this letter the paragraph uh it is now no more that toleration is spoken of at, as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights for happily the government of the United States, which gives bigotry, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. Do you, how do you read that in the letter? Do you see that as a, um, a limitation on religious liberty, a constraint. I mean, this notion that is there even a kind of quid pro quo there? You're free to practice your religion, but you're but that right requires you to, as he says, uh, demean yourself as good citizens. Yeah, that's you, a great you, question. That, that's a, that's a yeah, that's a great question, and it's a tough question because it requires careful. You have to answer that in a careful way, because as you were suggesting, David, if, if 
if the right to religious liberty is a sort of quid pro quo thing, you you run the risk of saying government uh, only guarantees your right to religious liberty so long as you fulfill this duty or do this or perform that. And and I don't think, and I, I know you know this, I don't think that Washington and, and, and others at the time, Madison and Jefferson and others would have would have ever said that that your natural and inherent rights, as Washington puts them, depend in any way on the blessings of government. So what I read that paragraph as very carefully crafted by Washington uh, to say to say that um, not that your right to religious liberty is given to you or protected in exchange for you fulfilling certain duties or behaving in a certain way. But I always took it as Washington saying, you, you cannot justify certain kinds of actions or let's call it, you cannot behave badly as a citizen <laughs> and justify that in the name of religious liberty. So if you, if you want to, if you want to, you know, if you want to uh, persecute others and not recognize the, the, the full and equal rights of others, for example, to religious freedom, you can't claim the right to do that in the name of religious liberty. Um, so so uh, uh, I don't see this as a quid pro quo. I think I always took it as Washington reminding those, uh, everybody who enjoys religious liberty, not that, not that uh, it's a quid pro quo, but that, 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 that he's kind of putting boundaries to what can be justified by the idea of religious liberty. So uh, I didn't do that very well. I apologize. It's not very clear. But you can't, you have to demean everybody, regardless of what your religion is, must demean themselves as good citizens, he says, in giving it, its government, on all occasions, their effectual support. To not do that, it, it, and to be punished maybe for not fulfilling your duties of, of citizenship, you would not be punished for religious liberty. You would be punished for, for not fulfilling your fundamental duties as a citizen. So mm -hmm. I, I think what he's doing is here, he's he's putting a, he's laying out a pretty broad umbrella for what falls under the, you know, the right of religious liberty, but at the same time saying, don't, don't conflate this somehow to mean that you can get away with doing all sorts of bad things as citizens. That's always so, the way I read it. And the way I, the reason I do that, David, and sorry to, to, no, to no, keep no, going too long here, is, is, you know, of course, I'm sure you read these. Washington wrote a, a, a slew of letters to various religious denominations. I, I happen to think that this letter to the Hebrew congregation, Hebrew congregation at Newport is the most eloquent and, and beautifully written. But in every one of those letters to religious denominations, whether it's to the Pro, a, a Protestant denomination or the Roman Catholics, uh, there's a great letter he wrote to Roman Catholics and a, and a letter to the Quakers. In every one of those letters, he, he lays out something like this formula in the sense that you are blessed to live in a country that, that, that recognizes your natural and an inherent right to religious liberty. But don't forget that you also have duties to fulfill as citizens. Right. And, and you can't you can't abrogate those duties or neglect those duties. In the name of religious liberty. Well, I think that's a good point because in Satius's letter to Washington, there's no mention. Uh, I believe there's no mention of natural rights, and Washington has in that paragraph that phrase "inherent natural rights," which is what the point you're talking about. Which is that these are sometimes the phrase "inalienable" is used. We'll see that in in other documents, but. Uh, 
there's a notion, you're right, that this is, this is um, the reason why it's no longer toleration, but really uh, religious freedom is because we recognize that we don't tolerate you on the basis of good behavior, but that, that you have a natural right, which government has no uh, authority to interfere with. But let me ask you if I, could, if I could push this a little bit. You mentioned the other letters that Washington wrote. He did write letters to Quakers, right? Yes, yeah, the, the letter to Quakers, yeah. And, and it's safe to say that Washington thought that defending your country was part of demeaning yourself as a good citizen, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So how, how does he handle the Quakers who are unwilling to bear arms in defense of the country? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a wonderful letter again, but he handles that very delicately. <laughs> he, uses, he uses the word delicacy at the end of that letter. I think he uses the word delicacy. And he says in that letter to the Quakers, nobody has proved themselves more useful and upright citizens. Am I getting some feedback? getting feedback from me? Sounds like we're getting feedback from somebody. But he says in that letter, um, no religious group has, has proven themselves to be more upright and, and sort of patriotic, useful citizens than the Quakers, except in their unwillingness to share the burden of defense, right? Whether it's contributing directly through taxes. Uh, of course, the Quakers were able to sometimes to find ways around that. You know, their their religion prohibited them from paying taxes for uh, for um, for um, for gunpowder and cannonballs and cannons and these sorts of things. And uh, but sometimes they found ways around that. But Washington says no people has proven themselves to be more upright and useful, except in their unwillingness to contribute either personally or through tax dollars to the to the defense. And um, and he and he reminds them in that letter of the same thing he's reminding the Hebrews of here and the Catholics in another letter and the Protestants in another letter that you have the right to religious liberty, but that religious liberty cannot be used to excuse yourselves from the fundamental duties of, that all American citizens equally must bear. And he ends that letter to the Quakers by saying, uh, <clears throat> I, I hope, I believe that the, that the conscientious scruples of all men should be delicately cons considered with a kind of delicacy and, and, um, and care and I hope that Congress will find a way or will find it possible for, um, for Quakers to be exempted from military service. But that's Washington writing in a, in a in sort of personal capacity at the, at the end of that letter. He's writing the letter as president, but he's, what he's acknowledging there at the end is that it's really up to Congress as the representatives of, of society in a way, right? It's up to Congress to decide whether it is possible for the Quakers to be exempted from military service. And Washington saying privately, I hope that Congress will find it unnecessary for us to force them to serve and contribute directly to the defense. If it's not necessary for them to do that, then on the grounds of sort of conscientious scruples, then we should allow them to be exempted from that. But that's a that's a policy question, really. And it's and it's um uh, uh, to be decided by law, by Congress, and not and and so I think what he's reminding there is you have the full and equal right to religious liberty, but you do not have a, a right to demand military um, uh, 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 exemption. 
But he says, but it's a delicate question. We have to take these things very, very seriously. And air, and air. Uh, uh, hopefully, I think air as much as possible on the side of, of conscience, conscientious scruples, if possible. But conceding uh, that conscientious scruple. I don't know if conceding is the right word, but that that's uh, if if Congress passed a law that in fact denied conscientious objection to military duty, that would not, in Washington's view, be a violation of the religious uh, rights of Quakers or not? I, I, don't, I don't think he, I think he would say no, it would not be because uh, you have the natural right to, to religious liberty, but, but we're not in a state of nature, right? If you were in a state of nature, then you could, you can, you can object to anything you want, but you have to remember that you are not only a free individual, uh, endowed with these equal inherent rights, but you are also a member of American society. So, um, this is this is the thing. This is why I was so glad, David, you started with that really fascinating point about the political context of Washington's letter, because, um, again, for the first time in really since the days of Moses, uh, Hebrews are capable of being full and equal citizens. And also uh, equally uh, 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 allowed to exercise their religion freely, but with with citizenship comes a kind of price. That's not the right word, but you know, with with membership in any kind of society, and citizenship in, in the United States is a kind of membership um, uh, based society, if you will. Right? You have you have um, not only privileges. Well, I don't like the word privileges because that's too that's too old fashioned and sounds like toler toleration you have rights but you also have responsibilities and duties that you have to fulfill so we always have to think of uh citizens in in two contexts or in two two sort of capacities here they're private individuals but they are also citizens and um where your fundamental duties as citizens require you to do something you can't you cannot demand that you have the natural right to not do those things um on the grounds that it somehow violates your your religious scruples, it's a tough thing. This is why Washington says it's a delicate question because where do you really draw the line? You see, this has to be decided by somebody. If you left it up simply to individuals, then uh, then you know the, 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 there was concern among many people um, at the time. Washington, Patrick Henry, and others who tended to think kind of alike on these uh, questions of religious liberty. The concern was nobody would, you know, people would not would be inclined to, more and more people would be inclined to not fulfill their duties and serve in um, in defending their country. By the way, I'm, I'm sorry right, for right. talking so much, but when we get to Madison, eventually we'll see that James Madison disagrees entirely with that. This is one yeah, of the fundamental yeah. things that Madison will disagree with Washington on uh, conscientious objection. So. Right. Before we, we, we turn to the more memorial remonstrance, there, there's a, a question. I was just looking at chat and um, somebody has said, uh, interesting, this is a political question as, as well as straight rights, because Jews in Newport were not allowed full voting or office holding rights as citizens of Rhode Island. So in reality, they were not truly citizens, correct? Um, as far as I know, that's uh, that's not true. That is to say, you there there was no I, I, I may be wrong about this because the, the one thing that's good about the question uh, that, that on the chat is because 
Washington is obviously speaking as president of the United States. Um, the, the Bill of Rights does not apply to the states at this point. Um, and in fact, there is a tremendous variety in the states of um, there, there are, are still religious establishments, as there will be for uh, a couple of decades in Connecticut and Massachusetts. States have different rules about whether clergymen, there's I think six or seven of the new states prohibit clergymen from holding public office. Other states allow it. Some states still are taxing to support religion. Uh, there's a, a wide variety, but I think the, the case is, and, it, and this includes such things as uh, uh, voting rights, but I believe there is in Rhode Island, uh, the Jews would have voted. They would have been full citizens from the viewpoint of the law, whatever discrimination they might have met in other ways. And Satius is an interesting character because he was also a Mason. And he addressed the second uh, greeting to Washington as a fellow Mason. And eventually Satius became the, I, I don't know what the exact term is, but he was the head of the local Masonic lodge in Newport, which is to me a sign of the integration of the Jews into that community. So as far as I know, um, uh, the reason the Jews went to New, this, this congregation went to Newport is because they were able to, to live there um, in, in a, in, in, and practice their religion in a way they, they were not in most other places. And I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I think in Rhode Island there was no prohibition. You didn't have to be a Christian to be a citizen in Rhode Island. No, you're, you're right. Yeah, Rhode Island, um, I believe after 1780, or sometime early in the 1780s, uh, Jews were, were full citizens. There were no longer any religious tests for holding office. Um, uh, Kate mentions in the chat box here that states that had established religions could have religious tests for office. And that's true. There were several states that did have established religions, and they tended to be the ones that also required a test, a religious test, to hold office. Um, it was certainly true in Massachusetts. Uh, for example, uh, uh, there were, of course, Jews were were uh, were allowed to practice their religion in Massachusetts all the way into the 1790s, but uh, but there was a religious test to hold office. Uh, South Carolina was is the one that always pops to mind first. South Carolina was very strict in terms of the religious tests uh, that that uh, that were required to not just hold office but also to vote and, and really you know enjoy any kind of privileges of citizenship. But yeah, Rhode Island was was way ahead of the curve, and Pennsylvania was way ahead of the curve. Philadelphia was, of course, the really the mecca of um, uh, to, well, it's an interesting term. Why I chose mecca? It's a religious term, but, <laughs> but 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 on that note, you know, Philadelphia had such a wide variety of churches, and it was it's worth noting since I I made that bad joke um, <laughs> that it wasn't just it wasn't just Jews that were uh, free to worship in places like Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, but there were actually uh, Muslims that were, that, were, um, that were practicing in this country and were, were in certain states, depending on the state where you live, were, were, were capable of being full citizens. They called them Mahabadans at the time, which is probably a politically incorrect term today. But, but if you go back and read a lot of the writings from that era on um, from various states uh, where, where they're more open to these sorts of things, um, it's clear that there were that uh, you know Rhode Island, places like Rhode Island, uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Interestingly enough, North Carolina was pretty open uh, uh, with regard to um, uh, religious liberty. Um, 
yeah, so it was a wide variety of, um, uh, of, of religions that were being practiced back then. And if I may make a, a plug, we're uh, in about a month, we hope, uh, we're going to debut a, a new uh, part, a new website on teaching American history, which will be called Religion in American History and Politics. We hope that website will open up in about a month or so. And one of the things on that website is a chart, will be a chart, which uh, lists the states uh, and when the uh, colonial, what what the circumstances were for colonial for religion in colonial times. That is, whether or not there was an establishment, when disestablishment occurred, whether there was a test for office, a number of these things that like Chris has been talking about. So I hope I can never keep these things clearly in mind as Chris does, but that I hope that chart will be useful to people in sorting out. There's tremendous complexity. Nobody. One thing that I think, you know, we we kind of forget in a way or. Nobody had done this before. That is to say, give religious liberty. And nobody knew quite what it really meant. Nobody thought through every single detail. So the states are struggling. Uh, I, I would maybe not struggling, but the states are working through these questions. Chris, we were just talking about the fact that the Quakers, how do you deal with that? This goes on, obviously, through American history. You can think of the Mormons and polygamy. I mean, there's lots of examples. The Supreme Court still dealing with questions like this, uh, what exactly the limits are. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that there's a lot of uh, difference in the states. Yes, yeah, it's true. I can't wait to see that site, David. I haven't seen it. Um, do you mind me just mentioning, somebody asked in the text box sure, um, sure. where some of these letters can be found. So let me plug our document uh, uh, database that we've been working on for the last 15 years. Uh, it's available at teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org for short. And if you go to the founding era and you click on George Washington and scroll down to around March or so of 1789, you can see a whole series of letters that Washington wrote uh, to various religious denominations. So there's the letter to the General Assembly of Presbyterian Churches. Uh, there's a letter to the Hebrew congregations of the city of Savannah, Georgia, which would be interesting. Uh, letter to the United Baptist Churches, letter to the annual meeting of Quakers. That's the, the letter that I was that we've been referencing here. That was September of 1789. Um, and then uh, letter to the Roman Catholics of 1790. So these are all available, uh, including the letter to the to the Hebrew congregation at Newport at uh, teachingamericanhistory.org. If anybody's interested in comparing these letters. But yeah, you're right, David. It's amazing how varied. By the way, I just um, I, I don't I you know I don't want, don't want you to think I'm trying to push us into James Madison because I know you know I like talking about James Madison. But but it's interesting. Madison, when he introduced the Bill of Rights, it, um, let me let me preface this by saying, of course, part of the reason why you have this 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 great diversity of uh, among the states of how you how you how you deal with these questions of religious liberty is because, of course. Um, uh, has to do with the with the sort of manner in which the states came together between 1774 and 1776, and the the basis upon which they 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 uh, united, right? Um, in which they said, we're, you know, we believe that there are some things that could be some responsibilities that need to be delegated to uh, a government of the union, but these other kinds of questions, the questions that that we as a as a people, the people of Pennsylvania or the people of Rhode Island or the people of South Carolina, these kinds of questions that we find are important, we, we want to retain the right to determine those questions for ourselves. 
And when the Bill of Rights was first passed, or, or when it was ratified, it's interesting that uh, even after the Bill of Rights was ratified, these kinds of, the, the ability of each state, the people of each state to decide these questions for themselves did not go away. The Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, prohibiting religious establishments and uh, prohibitions on religious liberty or restrictions on religious liberty uh, or uh, free exercise of religion, uh, th those restrictions only applied to the national government. So even after the Bill of Rights was passed, states were still free to decide for themselves whether to have a religious establishment, um, should there be tests for uh, religious tests for office, state and local office. And it wasn't really until the passage of the 14th Amendment um, that uh, that uh, the rights, the prohibitions, if you will, against Congress and the, and the national government, the federal government, uh, were really starting to be started to be applied against the state governments. Interestingly enough, the First Amendment really didn't come into question until the 1930s. Uh, that is, it's not. It wasn't until the 1930s when cases. Um, started making their way to the Supreme Court where people were saying, we think that the 14th Amendment also prohibits the state governments from establishing religions and um, infringing or regulating, if you will, the free exercise of, of religion. So even after the Bill of even after the 14th Amendment, it's quite a long time before these questions started to really fall under the purview of the national government. And uh, and the court started really tying the hands of the people of each state to decide these questions for themselves. That's a long introduction to some small point I wanted to make, David, which is James Madison, when he introduced the, the amendments that went on to be known as the Bill of Rights, introduced one more amendment that was was um, was uh, overwhelmingly rejected by Congress, and that was he wanted to prohibit the state governments from infringing on the right to religious liberty. And that was rejected and it did not even make it to the list of amendments that was proposed. So if Madison's amendment had been included and had been had been approved, you would have seen a, a, a much more sort of uniformity in how the various states um, dealt with the question of religious freedom. As, as, as it turned out, of course, that didn't happen. And so you, you had this, this kind of diversity existing well into the 1800s. Yeah, good, good, good point, Chris. One, one thing we will, we will turn to Madison. But well, one other thing I wanted to mention, just, just briefly, in this paragraph from the <clears throat> Washington's letter we've been talking about, he concludes: um, the persecution of no assistance requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions. It being the government of the United States on all occasions their effectual support. And the reason I emphasize that is because one, one thing that, again, we, I think we don't feel the way people would have at the time was the problem that religious freedom could set up uh, this question of dual loyalty. So if you're a British subject, uh, your religious faith and your political faith coincide in the queen or the king, because the king or the queen's the head of the both the, the government and the church, uh, not true in the United States. So from the viewpoint of the Protestant majority, what do we think of these religious minorities? Are they, are they as committed to the country as we are? And the, the criticism uh, 
of Jews, uh, first of Catholics, I think this was historically more a pressing problem for Catholics, was that their loyalty was actually to the Pope rather than to the government of the United States. And there's, I think, a reflection of that. I'd be interested to see if Chris agrees or disagrees, but a reflection of that in Washington's language here. And of course, that was still an issue when John Kennedy ran for office in 1960. And now, uh, it's it's an issue in our politics now with with Jews and and Israel because of that's become a more uh, because of the creation of a of a Jewish state which of course didn't exist at the time we're talking about so I bring that up again because that really is the background to this letter this it never before in human history had had people separated their religious loyalty and their political loyalty and. Uh, nobody really knew how that would work or if it would work or what the consequences might be. Uh, and, and I think that's reflected in Washington's letter. And I think it's also apparent in um, the memorial and remonstrance, which we can turn to now, unless Chris wanted to comment on that. Do you, mind, yeah, that's a, do, you, do you mind if I just say something about that? Because that's a great point. Um, generally speaking, the, I think the farther north in the states that you went, uh, between 1776 and 1790, the less trust that, that the Protestant majority had in in Catholic citizens for the for the reasons that you just mentioned, and I think part of the reason for that, the part of the reason that the, the the farther north you went, the more distrust there was, or maybe distrust isn't the right word, but doubt, uh, as you say, as to whether Catholics could be good citizens, full good faithful American citizens, and put aside their allegiance to Rome. Was because you had, of course, the, the the that French majority, the Catholic French majority in the north, which um, <clears throat> which you know we tried to persuade them to join the cause of the revolution, and they declined. And there was, um, uh, you know, there was the idea even during the revolution or before the revolution that the British were sort of trying to surround us on the north uh, with Catholic with Catholic monarchists who were faithful to monarchy. Um, so there's a lot of distrust in the northern states toward Catholics. But interestingly enough, again, the farther south you went, there was there was more of a sense that Catholics could, in fact, be very, very good uh, American citizens. And um, uh, I, I just again, the Madison, by the way, when, when James Madison is is writing the memorial and remonstrance and demonstrating against the. Um, Really pushing back against the uh, the church bill that Patrick Henry has introduced, he enlists the the, the Catholics to his cause, and he writes in a letter um, later uh, when he's when he's um, uh, sort of re uh, writing about how the, the the memorial and remonstrance came about. Uh, he writes that, that, that there were uh, among the zealous supporters of religious liberty in the state of Virginia. He says the Catholics were were, were very outspoken in favor of religious liberty. Probably yeah, because they were the, ex the extreme minority, but yeah, it's true. True historically, that uh, the, the Catholics tended to be very strong supporters of the separation of church and state. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. they feared they feared the Protestant majority. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And by the way, just one other thing, David, if you don't mind, um, the, in Washington's letter to the Roman Catholics, again, this is available at um, TeachingAmericanHistory.org. Uh, this letter was written March 15th of 1790. He ends his letter this way, if you don't mind me writing or reading this. Sure. This is to, this again, this is a letter to Roman Catholics, 1790. He says, um, I thank you, gentlemen, for your kind concern for me. 
while my life and my health shall continue in whatever situation I may be, it shall be my constant endeavor to justify the favorable sentiments which you are pleased to express of my conduct. Here's the part I was getting to here. And he says, and may the members of your society in America, animated alone by the pure spirit of Christianity, and still conducting themselves as the faithful subjects of our free government, enjoy every temporal and spiritual felicity. Now I'm adding the emphasis there, right? But <laughs> I'm reading this in a certain way where Washington's being very subtle here, but he's making making it clear that that Catholics need to continue to conduct themselves as faithful subjects of our government. And it's implied there, there's that sort of beneath the surface, or, you know, are they subjects of the Pope? Are they, are they American subjects? Um, and, 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 uh, and there's also the, um, the exhortation to be animated alone by the pure spirit of Christianity, maybe rather than get wrapped up in some of the orthodoxy um, uh, demanded by the, by the Catholic church at the time. But, I, I like the way he does that. It's very, it's there, but it's it's kind of subtle. So, yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, do you, do you want to uh, give an introduction to the memorial and remonstrance? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, let me, uh, um, I don't want to go back. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to go back too far, but I I did want to um, start by by framing the memorial and remonstrance in the context of Madison's own political aspirations. Um, there are some wonderful letters from from uh, between 1772 and 1774, when James Madison uh, is is sort of fresh out of college from from the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton. And there's some wonderful letters he's writing to his friend William Bradford, where he's sort of kicking around for for you know what is he what can he do that's useful with his life. And um, there's one letter in particular where we see he he he's He's identified a cause that he can really get behind, and that is, in 1774, religious persecution has broken out in Virginia, and at that time, the Anglican majority has been persecuting the Baptist minority in the state. And there's some wonderful letters from Madison um, where he says, this vexes me most of all. And so this cause of defending religious liberty is something from the very beginning of Madison's political career that is very dear to his heart. Uh, as we know, he goes in 1776 to the um, to the Virginia Constitutional Convention and contributes that great line to their <clears throat> to their Declaration of Rights, where he changes the word toleration, the wording of toleration, to the language that says all men are equally entitled to the full, uh, uh, free and equal uh, rights of conscience. Uh, so it's Madison, who's Madison in Virginia, who is responsible for changing the language of toleration to the language of religious liberty in the state of Virginia. Uh, and so he's known as a, from the very beginning of his political career, as a great defender of religion and religious liberty. Um, and I, and when I say he's a defender of religion, I mean that sincerely because I believe that Madison's purpose in in defending religious liberty is not just to preserve. Uh, the rights of individuals, the natural rights of individuals to to believe what they want and practice what they want. But I, I think ultimately also Madison's goal is to is to uh, is to allow religion to flourish. Um, but but it has to be a better it has to be a more pure religion, uh, so to speak. Uh, uh, we can talk later about what I mean by that if you want. But but by um, by 1784. Um, Madison had believed Madison and others believed that the revolution had done away forever with the 
with the idea of a religious hierarchy or an established religion in the state of Virginia. Um, Madison believed that the, the, the separating from Great Britain, Virginia wrote its own constitution in 1776, to which Madison contributed, as I said. Madison, and Madison believed that that marked the end of religious establishment in, in Virginia permanently. And here then, all of a sudden, comes Patrick Henry in 1784 with a bill that he once introduced. And the bill is known as the General Assessment Bill. It's actually, uh, official title is a bill establishing, um, I forget, what was the actual title? The actual title was a bill establishing um, a provision for teachers and ministers of the Christian religion. And what Patrick Henry wants to do is raise a tax that will pay ministers, essentially. And on the surface, nominally, this is going to be, it's supposed to be neutral, it, it, the bill says teachers of Christianity can benefit from this, but of course, what that means is teachers of, of of the Hebrew faith and other faiths are excluded from that. And and of course, Madison and everybody else knows that really what this means is it's going to benefit the majority religion of Virginia, which now is the Episcopal Church. And so Madison sounds the alarm with the memorial and remonstrance. And um, if you don't mind, I, I was going to read his description of what happens here. Uh, this is from a, uh, a letter that Madison wrote later about the event. Um, he says, um, uh, this bill introduced by Patrick Henry was, a, was, a, was printed and published. At the instance of a few people, Colonel George Mason and others, the memorial and remonstrance against it was drawn up and copies printed of it and circulated throughout the state to be signed by the people at large. It met with the approbation of the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Quakers, and the few Roman Catholics universally, of the, excuse me, of the Methodists in part, and even of not a few of the sect formerly established by law. When the legislature assembled, the number of copies and signatures prescribed displayed such an overwhelming opposition of the people that the proposed plan of a general assessment was crushed under it, an advantage taken of the crisis to carry through the legislation that bill that Jefferson had introduced earlier and in which you'll talk about, David, the, the bill to establish religious freedom. So it's Madison who wrote up the memorial, circulated it, uh, got overwhelming support for it. Uh, this is uh, you know, Madison's political uh, uh, prowess, uh, helped him uh, get the kinds of support and signature uh, signatures for the, the memorial that, that were needed. And he did a great job of using the, the network of friends that he had built in, in Virginia as a politician to get this get this done. And, um, and as he says, it, it, it crushed the effort put forth by Patrick Henry uh, to get this church bill passed. So that's kind of the historical background of how this comes about. Um, if you look at the memorial and remonstrance itself, you can see that it's, it, it's, it's comprised of, um, of several points. 15 points, and it begins and ends with with uh, with what you might call statements of principle, uh, rooted in the idea that that religious freedom and freedom of conscience, uh, those things are in fact natural and inherent rights. So it begins and ends with those kinds of statements. Um, the the second, third, and fourth and fifth points are interesting because they have to do with with Madison's understanding of the origins and purpose of government, really the points two through four are sort of framed in the context of 
social compact, what the purpose of the social compact is. Why do people leave the state of nature and establish government? Um, people don't leave the state of nature and establish government so that they can infringe on your religious liberty, right? And so no authority, he says, is given to, to the province of the legislature to, to, to regulate this. And even a small attempt by, by the legislature to limit religious liberty ought to be opposed. Um, in the middle of the memorial and remonstrance, you have points number six and seven, which are interesting. Uh, point number six says that uh, claims that government support of Christianity is not necessary. And in fact, he goes on in the next point, number seven, to say, in fact, not only is government support of religion necessary for Christianity, it usually undermines Christianity. If you go back and look at the history of government support for Christianity, it has led to nothing but persecution and bloodshed and just injustice and violence and these things. Uh, and then following the next several points, eight through 14, are, are, uh, are on the question of whether support for religion is good for government. And his answer to that is no, because uh, it will discourage, he says, immigration. It leads to the banishment of citizens. It undermines the peace of society. It, um, it undermines respect for law and order if you have a religious, a religious establishment. And he concludes in point number 14 by saying, and, and finally, it's not even, this bill is not required, is not desired by a majority of citizens. So it's actually sort of uh, undemocratic or unrepublican. This would be a bill, if it was put through Patrick Henry's bill, if it passed, would be an example of a minority, the minority ruling the majority here. So, uh, so there's a wide range here, of course, of reasons that Madison opposes this. And I, I like this document because because um, because it really shows not just Madison's principled arguments in favor of religious liberty and against religious establishments, but it shows uh, how he's thinking politically about this. That is, he's he is covering all the bases here that will appeal to appeal to a wide base of of, uh, of citizens in, in Virginia. Um, and he's making an argument not just from the perspective of religious liberty, but also from the perspective of what what uh, will this bill, if passed, lead to better government or worse government? So there's a kind of practical side to this um, to this um, memorial and remonstrance as well. Do, so David, do you what want do you to say? Want? Well, I just was going to ask if you if you want to say a couple of words about how it differs from, you mentioned that you thought there was a difference between Washington and Madison on the, these yeah. questions. I wondered if you'd just characterize that difference. Yeah, there's a great letter from Washington, and I, I can't remember who it's to off the top of my head, I apologize, um, where, where Washington comments on this, on the moral remonstrance. And he writes in this private letter, it's a private letter written in 1784, where he says, you know, Madison's not entirely wrong. I'm paraphrasing. Madison's not entirely wrong about this, but but I do think he's wrong when he says that that government support of religion is unnecessary. Um, and um, that that was the thing. And so on that point, and that was really the motive for Patrick Henry in introducing the Church Bill or the General Assessment Bill was he he believed that in the aftermath of the of the revolution and the, and the demise of the uh, Anglican hierarchy in Virginia, Patrick Henry and others were actually afraid that morality was on the decline in the state. And Washington writes in this letter that he agreed, he generally agrees with that. And you can, 
see how consistent Washington is in that belief. If you read, for example, his his statements uh, and his first inaugural address and his farewell address and other places where he says, let's let's be careful when we say that morality can exist in a republic without religion. Uh, but in this letter, this letter that I was referring to earlier, Washington says, I, I think Madison's wrong about that. I think that some kind of government support, uh, it doesn't have to be financial support, but some kind of some kind of encouragement of religion from government is is necessary to induce uh, good moral behavior on the part of citizens. So that's yeah, so, disagree. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, so in the farewell address, for example, Washington says that morality and religion are indispensable supports to uh, Republican government. And yes. that you're saying is uh, not at all Madison's view. Oh, well, no, I, I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Madison would say uh, that that morality and religion are indispensable for good for good society, but 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 that that but that you don't get good religion and morality through government support of those things. Well, this 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 gets back, doesn't it, to your 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 mentioning mentioning as as. Madison uses the phrase too, pure religion or the purity of religion. Right. So right. Madison, in fact, had a particular view of religion in mind. Yes. Do, was, do you want to explain what you think that what he meant by pure religion? It was a, a pure, well, I, yeah, I have to clarify that because I, I it wasn't as though Madison's believed that we would eventually arrive at a at one single perfectly true and, uh, and clear um, uh, understanding of what Christianity required. But he believed, again, that you could have these, in fact, encouraged, as you know, right, these multiple uh, sects, religious sects or religious denominations around the country. All of them should be pure, what I meant by that, pure in the sense that, that they were healthy religions uh, that, that, uh, that led to a um, good society, good citizens, and that did not uh, lead to either the undermining of religious, or uh, sorry, the undermining of governmental authority, and, and that did not lead to the kinds of fascist violence that we know Madison was also so concerned about, right? So by a pure religion, I think, again, if you're, if you want to be uh, a Presbyterian or Catholic or, or Jewish or whatever it was, you can, you can disagree in terms of your your creeds, but 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 um, but what all of those religious denominations should have in common is an understanding that that all other religions have have the right, all other individuals have the right to believe what they want to believe. You don't have to agree with their with their religious creeds, but you have to recognize that they have the right to and a natural right, right, to, to believe what they want to believe and practice what they want to practice. So I think by what I meant by pure religion was. Religions that that differed from each other, but that did not, but that also re, re, somehow found a way to be either restrain themselves, if possible. And I think Madison has his doubts about that too. But but that we're not allowed uh, to go out and start persecuting others in the name, or or not just persecuting others, but even uh, getting special privileges over other religions, and and, and therefore having the authority to suppress. Uh, the freedom that other uh, individuals and other religions had in terms of practicing freely what they believed. So that's all I meant by pure, if that, make, if that helps. 
Well, it, it, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the question to me, I guess, um, uh, I, I guess I, I might, I was just looking at the chat thing for a second, got distracted, but uh, I'll come back to that. But the, the question to me is, is this does require a change in the way religious people think about themselves. In other words, the, the way this we normally talk about this is to say that, in fact, religions are free uh, in the United States or wherever religious liberty means free practice, free exercise. But it does, in, in, it seems to be your argument implies that it does require a change in religion. There are certain kinds of religious sentiments that are not as acceptable anymore as they once were. For example, the, the problem was the Catholic Church declaring that it was the one uh, universal church. Um, that's no good. So ultimately, in the history of Protestantism in the United States, you get this notion of denominationalism, which is, in effect, means we we different churches, we accept each other as legitimate ways to pursue uh, religion. Yes. And, right. and the problem with the Catholic Church was that it, it didn't accept this notion of denominationalism. Right. Uh, and, and therefore, but, but Madison really is saying, we'll give you religious liberty, but it's going to require that religion have the following characteristics. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. So that's, that one char the main characteristic is you have to recognize the right of all other denominations to to believe what they want and practice what they want. That's a non-negotiable for, for Madison. Right. And w would you go further or uh, is it possible to go further to say that Madison actually has in mind by the purity of religion a kind of a notion of what acceptable morality is and that a religion has to reflect that notion of kind of sensible morality as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I think so. And I don't want to, I don't want to say Madison simply Lockean because I think Madison had, uh, had some, uh, some serious uh, disagreements with the way John Locke talked about these things, but, 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 um, you know, any kind of behavior, <laughs> let me do it this way. A, a tr an individual a church could not teach or preach uh, doctrines that would that would in, incite or induce people to go out and engage in actions that would fundamentally fund, uh, violate fundamental natural rights, the basic rights of life, liberty, property. You know, if a, if a church wanted to say it's okay to, to sort of cheat people of this religion or steal, you don't have to. There were some religions who were saying you do not have to. In fact, it was the Catholic. Uh, well. The Catholics were portrayed as believing that you do not have to keep your oaths or agreements. Uh, if you're Catholic, you do not have to keep your oaths or agreements or contracts with people of other religions. A church should not be allowed to teach and believe that sort of thing, according to Madison, because that violates um, a, a right that citizens have that is rooted in something natural or something, a kind of right or, or, or you know that that arises out of the original understanding of, of of natural rights somehow. But the but the problem, David, is how do you deal with the church that teaches those things? Because Madison would have said, I think Madison would have said, you you can't allow government to prohibit churches. You can't say 
you, you don't want a government to come in and say that church is teaching the wrong sorts of things, so we have to prohibit that church. And you don't want government to come in and say, you know what, this church is teaching that. Government is now going to tell that church you can't be saying those things. Because, because even though Madison would say the church, those churches shouldn't be teaching those kinds of things, it might be even worse for Madison to say government should come in and start telling them what they can and can't say or which denominations are allowed to exist and which have to be prohibited. The solution for Madison in the end for all of this is to, is to um, is, uh, well, let me do it this way if you don't mind. <clears throat> if, if an individual goes out and actually acts on one of these doctrines that is being taught by their church and let's say violates a contract or harms somebody in their rights to life, liberty, or property, you don't punish the church, you punish the individual. And that, that leads back to the way I think Washington thought about things as well, right? Remember, you as individuals, you have the right to religious liberty, but you still must demean yourself as a good citizen. But the other okay. solution for Madison is to multiply, multiply these religious denominations. And you, you said it earlier, David. Um, uh, if, if um, I mean, Madison wants, I think Madison wants these religions to be pure in this sense we've been talking about it. And he would like them to be so sort of voluntarily because they recognize that, recognize that that's the right thing to do. But if they don't, the way you keep them pure, again, maybe not the right term, but the way you keep them pure-minded in this sense is to keep them all in the minority. Yeah, that's a, that's a point in which Madison and Jefferson agreed. There, there's a couple of interesting comments in chat, which I'd like to go to, but I, I just wanted to say, Chris, that the what you said about the suspicion of Catholics uh, the Catholicism teaching that you don't have to keep contracts with non-Catholics. Similar things are said today about Muslims, uh, that Muslims can lie and cheat with non-Muslims and so forth. I, I, mean, I just think that's an interesting parallel. And as far as I know, in both cases, that's that's equally, in fact, equally untrue, but, yes. but yeah. said. Yeah. So but let me... So obviously, if you want to, if, if you're perfectly free to be Muslim in this country, but you are not free to violate your contracts. Right. And right, we would right. say that if you get, if you were arrested or fined or punished for that somehow, we would say we're, we're not violating your right to religious liberty. We're just enforcing civil laws here. Right. Uh, right the only point I was trying to make was that it's, I, I don't believe in either Catholicism or, or Islam that there is actually a teaching that you can cheat right, people right. Of, the other thing. But here, let, let me go to that. Uh, the, these uh, chat questions from Patrick Moore, because uh, he says, despite Madison's support for pure religion, section seven and eight include language that could be termed anti-clerical. Do you think this passage stands out from Madison's later writings? Section seven and eight includes language that could, I see, anti-clerical. Now, that's interesting. What, what he's, I think in, in section seven and eight, what he's pointing out is that, that, um, that priests and, and, and pastors, uh, religious leaders, have all the same uh, frailties and imperfections as all other men. <laughs> so what he, I think what he's implying in those sections is that, that, is that in the past, uh, priests, bishops, popes, even because of their religious authority, have abused that religious authority. Um, but we've, but, but, uh, but they've been sometimes given a pass for their, for their uh, uh, 
for their for their injustices because they are considered to be somehow better than other men because of their spiritual authority. I, I think what Madison's just doing there is reminding us that that priests, bishops, popes, whoever it is, religious figures, religious authorities are in the end men just like every other man, that is human beings, just like other human beings. And therefore to say that we can trust religious leaders to be always right is a, is a, is a misconception. They're fallible, just like other, every other human being. And so to give too much authority to these individuals uh, without restraint is, is, a, is, a, is foolish because you're, you're really just entrusting them with a degree of power um, that they are likely or at least um, prone to abuse just like any other human being would do. So and my, let me just, if you don't mind, um, to show that Madison is not simply anti-clerical. That is, he doesn't simply think all priests and religious leaders are bad. Uh, I'll give you the flip side of Madison's view on this. When Thomas Jefferson uh, wrote a draft for a new constitution in the state of Virginia in 1788, he sent it to James Madison, and Madison replied to, to Jefferson's draft. And one thing that Madison really objected to was that Thomas Jefferson was going wanted to, to prohibit uh, priests, preachers, any teacher of religion from holding office. And Madison responded, that's not a good idea, because what you would be doing is depriving somebody from a, a, a civil privilege or civil office or civil right, if you will simply because of their religious uh, affiliation or their religious, um, their, their connection to religion. So it wasn't that Madison simply wanted to distrust all people who were religious. He was just saying, I think, in section seven and eight, and seven and eight of the Memorial of Remonstrance, but let's be careful. So I don't know, Tom, by the way, David, I know you think Jefferson would disagree with that, right? Yeah, I was going to say, Jefferson, uh, what was anti-clerical? Uh, and there are a number of letters in which he says that the history shows that if priests, and he means by that, that you know, any religious official becomes involved in politics, that it, it will create mischief. And his argument is here not, it's not a question of, it's simply a practical argument. Um, prudence dictates, you know, reviewing history, prudence uh, dictates that we exclude clergy from holding public office. And as we've mentioned, a number of states did that uh, initially, at least. And that that, that was a, a review based on this, this very bloody history of religious conflict in Europe. And, and so, I, I mean, generally, I think that that's mu much of what Jefferson argued. And I, I, I think also uh, true of Madison, much of what they argue is actually based on prudential calculations rather than strictly uh, deductions from some view of natural rights or, or another. A lot of it is this kind of prudential reasoning. Yeah, yeah grounded, in, in, grounded in an understanding of history, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, that, but the, it seems to me, David, that Jefferson's language in the statute, the Virginia statute, could be maybe interpreted as more anti-clerical than even Madison's. Or, yeah, or, I, I, I agree. I don't think we'll get we'll get to the statute. And of course, the statute it differs somewhat from what Jefferson originally wrote. And I think actually what Jefferson wrote, I mean, I would think this because I'm a you know I'm a big Jefferson guy, uh, is is more coherent than what the legislature produced. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, there there that's just that's true in Jefferson. This was a difference. I think Chris is you're right to bring this up. The three the three of these 
founders uh, had different views on these religious issues. They had certain agreements, the basic notion of religious liberty, its necessity, uh, they all agreed on, obviously. But interpreting that, trying to understand it, trying to implement it, they, they did have... Um, they did have disagreements, um, and one one of these, I think, and and that I, my view is that many of these dis disagreements reflect their individual judgments based on history. Washington, I would say, being much more inclined to see a role for religion in politics and wanting somehow to encourage that, still respecting the separation of church and state, religious freedom, you know, free exercise of religion, and so forth but wanting to find some way to encourage uh, a role for religion. Jefferson um, being very skeptical of that and maybe Madison being um, a little bit under certain circumstances or with certain uh, principles in mind, being more willing even than Jefferson to accept some role for religion. Uh, also on the question of the purity of religion, I think Jefferson was you know, took took scissors to the Bible, so we know what he meant by purity of religion. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like there are important differences, and and they they're important in part because when um, and this 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 will allow me to put in another plug here in a second. But when the when Supreme Court justices go back and cite Madison or Jefferson as the authority for making a ruling on the separation of church and state, they are in fact picking out particular interpretations of that relationship and saying that therefore, and because Madison or Jefferson happened to say it, uh, trying to, to establish the authority of these two men, and obviously they're authoritative guys, you know, you have Madison, Jefferson, Washington, you know, but, but there are differences of agreement. And so the Supreme Court is selectively yeah. reading our history, I would say. And the reason that's a plug is because, um, as our time here comes to a close, I, I wanted to be sure to mention that um, we were, are going to have another webinar, a spe another special webinar at uh, October 3rd, in which we're going to have a couple of experts, one of whom is Jeff Sakenga from Ashland, talk about Supreme Court decisions over the past year and looking forward to uh, the, next, the court's next term uh, on the religious issues that the court has, has addressed and will address in the future. And of course, these documents, uh, letters that Jefferson wrote, you know, famously to, uh, you know, the Danbury Baptists about wall of separation have become canonical. Uh, and when you actually look at these documents as we have, even as briefly as we have, you see that there's a lot of questions they raise in a lot of difference, different, there are significant differences in what these, what the founders since, since you're going to do that, David, can I, can I, I mean, I know we only have a minute left and this is, this is just flown by and I'm sorry I talked too much and we didn't get the Jefferson statute, but um, if I could just put my two cents worth in on that and see whether sure, you, can ask, sure. you can ask Jeff whether he agrees or disagrees, but not only are the, I think you're absolutely right to say that the, the, the courts in the 20th century are, are selectively choosing from history which founders, so to speak, uh, uh, to to uh, to appropriate the, the, in the terms of their views on separation of church and state. But I also think they're fundamentally misreading those those documents that, as you say, have become canonical. Because I'm sure you'll talk about this, but in, left, in Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists, if you read that language very carefully, 
he is he is still so he's still leaving room for the to recognize that the states have the right to to establish religions if they want. But but you'll work through that. But I also want to point out again, Jefferson ends that letter, which is supposedly uh, meant to have the strict wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson ends that letter, which is written in his official capacity as president. He ends with a prayer. So that just shows you how strict or unstrict, I guess, that wall really is. And, Wa and Washington does the same thing back to the, the letter to the Hebrew congregation. He actually ends with two beautiful prayers. Uh, one is, a, I'm sure, a prayer that was, I mean, one is, again, uh, really rooted in Hebrew tradition where he where he talks about, may the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig trees, and there shall be none to make him afraid. That's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. And then Washington adds his own prayer in his own language, which is really revealing about Washington's, um, uh, 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 again, delicate approach to talking about, about God and religion. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and uh, darkness upon our paths and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. I love the way he ends that letter, which again is an official letter in his capacity as president, uh, with two prayers. So, right. Uh, I, I just, just you know, as we close, I'll just mention this: that you were speaking about the prayers in this, the Danbury letter and the prayer in this. It's also true that that Madison uses this phrase, uh, non-cognizant. You know, don't take cognizance. The government should not take cognizance of religion. Right. But his right. whole argument is based on. Uh, all, all sorts of claims about what God wants uh, and so forth. So <laughs> to me, you know, there, there's, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, skeptical of the arguments of how sound the arguments are. I recognize the practical necessity of the separation of church and state, but I think um, there's, a, there's a kind of constant need to um, ground these the separation in some principle, and that becomes, I think, it's difficult to do consistently in a way. And we and these documents reveal that the same is true of the statute of religious freedom, which makes all sorts of which makes a number of claims about what God prefers and God wants, um, and therefore seems to me to be inevitably introducing theology into our legislation, which is not the same as an institution, but. Right. It's, these religious things are woven unavoidably into our thinking about these things, um, which which is one reason why they continue to vex us, so to speak, and one reason why the Supreme Court keeps splitting hairs in trying to deal with these things. These they're they're very because of the way uh, the religious experience of people and and so forth. It's very difficult to have a consistent, uh, simple and consistent view of what church-state relations, yeah. religion and politics ought to yeah. be. Yeah, again, if I could just, I know we're out of time, but two cents worth here. Uh, if you ask Madison, Washington, Jefferson, um, okay, you say God wants this. How do you know what God wants? Well, back then you could, you know, Americans would say, you know the will of God, you derive the will of God from two sources, either scripture or nature, <laughs> right? Or maybe a combination of the two. Uh, the, I think the problem with the Supreme Court, the, the, the problem that the court's been facing in the 20th century is they can no longer they can no longer acknowledge either of those sources as revealing in any way of the source of theology, of the kind of theology. 
So because both yeah, have been yeah. detected in the 20th century. Yeah, I, I, I actually think that the, the, the question of the will of God and appealing to nature, the Bible, that, that each of those is problematic in its own way. Right. Um, but I think you're right that there was a, a common acceptance of those things as authorities in their own right, which is no longer the case. And the court in that sense can't, right. uh, can't use them in that way. So well, I want to thank thank Chris for for joining us this morning, and and thank all of you for joining us. Uh, just remind you that the the regular series of webinars begins next Saturday. Saturday, um, yeah. Chris is the host host of those. So there's a great lineup of topics he has, um, and I, I think they'll be very interesting. And again, October third, we'll send out some notices about that if you're interested in the Supreme Court's religion cases. Um, so thanks again. And uh, just another reminder, if um, you do want a certificate uh, for participation, um, Jeremy has once again uh, posted the, the link in the chat box. And if you fill out that form, um, that, that will take care of that. So uh, I know there were questions in the chat we did get to. Uh, sorry about that. If, if you, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, if you want to send me an email, uh, you know, dtucker at ashbrook.org with the question. I'd happy to continue this through email, and I hope that we'll have a chance this way or, or some other way to continue talking about these topics in the future. So thanks again to everybody and to Chris and to Jeremy and to all of you for joining us. Thanks very much. Thank you, David. Yeah, thank you very much. That was fun. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. So long. Take care.